Well, good morning, First Family. How good it is to see you guys. I'm sure you've already heard the word of the Lord from Revelation 15, and praise the Lord for it. God has been good to us, and it is good to be together today. We rejoice in God's goodness. Revelation 15 is sort of like the good news before the bad. We'll get the bad news next week. Revelation 16. If you want to read ahead, then you're welcome to. There you'll find the seven bowls of God's wrath. It's a terrible, terrible reality that exists ahead. But before we get there, and this is Revelation's pattern, a little good news before some bad, and we're going to stay here today. The whole chapter of Revelation 15. Here you'll find something like an old Willie Nelson Ray Charles song. You didn't know Willie Nelson was a prophet. Heaven help me if that's blasphemy. He and Ray Charles recorded a song some years ago, Seven Spanish Angels. It's a story about an outlaw and his lover who are breaking the law and then decide they'll run across the border into Mexico. When it becomes clear they can't make it and that they're outgunned, they embrace the idea God will spare them. And so they fight back, but the outlaw is shot and killed. His lover picks up his empty gun, and she is killed as well. The seven Spanish angels were there to pray for these lovers and presumably deliver them home. What do those seven Spanish angels have to do with these seven angels? Not a blessed thing. I just, my dementia runs that deep. I just thought I'd give that to you. It was the first thing I thought of when I was preparing this talk, and I thought it worth including. No, this chapter really starts in chapter 15, verse 1. I want you to see this, and I want you to get you a pen out or a pencil, because I want you to underline a couple of words here. See it in verse 1 of that chapter. A sign of judgment in heaven. This is the sign. See it in verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Underline those words. Would you be so kind? For it is a sign of judgment in heaven. This sign. It's the last one. When we see the word sign used through the Old Testament and the New Testament as well, it always points one way, to God. When the Apostle John uses it in his gospel, in his letters, and in the, the, uh, the Revelation, it is always pointing to Jesus. Signs, we're used to seeing them, they're all around us. But sometimes we ignore them. Just this week, I was walking across from our building here over to our activities building for lunch one day, and they were working on the street out here. There were signs everywhere that said road closed, they've got cones and they've got construction barrels all over the place. And yet, to my surprise, there came a brother driving his SUV the wrong way up Louisiana Street. I don't know how he got around the signs. Not only did he get around the signs, he wanted to turn right to go down in front of our activities building into the construction zone. Well, what's the problem with that? There's no way to get out. They had these signs, I don't know how big they are, wide as I can reach, with big black letters that said, Road Closed. He was undeterred. He drove down anyway. Believing that sign wasn't for him, surely not him. Well, I was too curious to keep walking. Maybe I afraid for my own safety, too. I stood back. 
I wanted to see what was going to happen now. And I watched as some of the workmen in the work zone, they did too. They stood back and leaned on their shovels a little further going, what is going to happen now? We got together and we extricated the gentleman from the situation and he went on his merry way. Certainly not, not like I've never made a mistake like that, right? But then again, as I thought about it, as I walked away, I thought, how many times do I blow past God's signs to me? Just rip right past them and say, that sign's not for me. That's for somebody else. Well, I want to tell you, this sign is for us. This sign indicates something very clear, and it intends to make something theologically significant obvious. The sign here points to the final elements of God's wrath and the conclusion of the created order. See, up to now, these other moments of wrath, like the trumpet judgments that we had, they were limited in scope. The ones that will be in chapter 16 are not limited. This sign, the seven angels, is the one final sign. It's great and amazing, so says the Apostle John. And these seven angels with their seven plagues are the last sign, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Herein is the fullest measure of God's wrath as it is poured out upon the earth. With this, the wrath of God is complete and his judgment final. I want you to also underline that word plague. Plague. When you go back to Exodus chapter 9, you'll see a series of plagues there too. They're the plagues that God sent upon the nation of Egypt, ten of them upon the nation of Egypt to convince Pharaoh to let God's people go. Finally, the last one turned the trick, but the other ones, they just discarded. What do they have in common with these plagues? The plagues of Exodus and these plagues are to result in the deliverance of God's people. Maybe you've never thought of what this is supposed to be about. I'm here to tell you what it's about. God is at work delivering his people yet again. He did it in Exodus in a way that is really extraordinary. In chapter 13, Pharaoh finally says, go, take your people and leave. But in chapter 14, he changes his mind and he sends an army after him. And when they catch up with the people of God, they're trapped, the people of God are, between the Red Sea on one side and the army of Pharaoh being pressed back by the hand of God on the other. The only way forward, the only way they can find deliverance is for God to enact it on their behalf. Think of it this way, God transcending, breaking in to human history to change things, to adapt them to his will. That happened in Exodus 14, and it's happening here. I want to give you a couple of things to take home with you. One, pay attention to the signs. They'll lead you the way home. This is why I wanted you to underline that word sign. They'll send you the way home. They'll tell you which way you should go. The other half of it is God's judgment is as certain as is his grace. A lot of people want to make much of God's grace, and that's me. Praise the Lord for the mercy, kindness, and patience of our Savior. 
The grace that he's offered me is something I will never, ever earn. See, I deserve judgment, and Jesus paid the penalty for me. The penalty had to be paid. I could pay it, or somebody else could, but it had to be paid. The only thing about it, that's somebody else. They had to be sinless. Jesus paid that penalty. You see, the reality is grace and judgment are the same coin turned over, two sides of the same coin. I can pay the price if I'm capable, but if I'm not, I need grace, and so do you. God's judgment is as certain as his grace. If I want to emphasize God's grace, and rightfully I should, then I have to also be aware that judgment is the other side of that. If I refuse God's grace, that's the only alternative I have. I want you to go with me to the next section, verses 2 to 4, where you'll find a grateful song from the redeemed. A grateful song from the redeemed. Let me read it again for you. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image, and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Here, friends, is where God's people are gathered together, standing by the throne of God beside a sea of glass. It's hard for us to think about a sea of glass, much less one mingled with fire, what will that look like? Well, I don't know. After the early service, one of our deacons came to me and said, Darren, I've seen it. That caught my attention. I've seen it. I was on a cruise across the Atlantic Ocean. We were miles from anywhere. I got out early one morning, and the Atlantic Ocean was just a sheet of glass. And as the sun shone down upon it, it looked like the water was on fire. I've seen it, Darren. Will that be what it's like? Maybe so. About as good a speculation as I think I can come up with. I want you to see, though, this isn't the first time that we've seen this sea of glass. We saw it in chapter 4, verse 6. It's intended to highlight the grandeur of the moment. After all, this is no ordinary body of water. This is no ordinary moment in time. God is, before he's sending out his wrath, reassuring his people, hey, Hey, he says, let's gather together and be clear about who I am in your life. These, these are those who loved Christ more than they feared death. These are those who were put in prison. These are those who didn't cooperate with the beast and the satanic system and they paid the price for it. They were totally dependent on God for their sustenance and provision. This, this is God's deliverance, just like it was in the book of Exodus. I want you to see something in verse 3, maybe even underline this too, the song of Moses, the song of the Lamb. Here we have two great pieces, a 
song of deliverance and redemption writ large and writ twice. The song of Moses, we see it in Exodus 15. The Lord is my strength and my shield. The song of Moses, the song of the Torah, the sacrificial system, the law, the old system. We have that song. And then we also have the song of the Lamb. I've been crucified with Christ, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. These two songs, the Old Testament and the New Testament, find unity at the throne of God. And you'll notice it says they're playing harps. You see it there at the end of verse 2, they're playing harps. Here's one of the, the, the ways, the places that we see people associating harps with, with angels, and rightfully so. But what I really want you to see is the song that they sing. This is where the historian in me gets really excited. For this, this, this verses 3 and 4, those verses reflect a hymn a hymn that goes back to some of the very earliest days of the church, second century at minimum. So if you want a song that's old and one that unites you with those that are around the throne of God, here it is. I want you to see this song, and I also want you to see what's missing from it. We're not told anything about the meter, the rhythm. You'll notice the song doesn't rhyme. I remember being so troubled by that as a child. The song has to rhyme, doesn't it? We're not told anything about what the angels are wearing. We're not told anything about the environment that they're singing it in. We're not told anything about the style of which they are being sung. It, we don't know if it's old school Southern gospel or if it's a, a new contemporary song. We don't know anything about that. All we know is that the grateful redeemed stand around the throne of God and sing this song. In other words, it doesn't matter. All of that other stuff is just preference. All of the other is just window dressing. Don't get trapped by it. Make sure that you focus on that which is eternal. And that's what their song does. Their praise exalts God for at least three things. And I want to move through these quickly. Praising God for what he has done. They look back and they see his hand at work. You know, we can do that too. You can look back and see how God has shown himself powerfully over and over and over again in your life and in the pages of the, of, of the Bible. Can I tell you today, friends, when we see what God has done, it draws us to worship. Here's another part to it. Praise God in and for his holiness. It's an introspective look, not within myself, but to see who he really is. You see, when I see God for who he really is, it helps me also see who I really am. In Isaiah chapter 6, we have a good example of that. Isaiah is in the temple. Smoke fills the temple. We'll come back to that in a minute. And as smoke fills the temple, he sees, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. And what does Isaiah do? Run up and high five the Lord? Uh, no, he falls on his face and says, I'm ruined. See, when I see God for who he really is, it tells me who I really am too. 
Here's the third thing they praise God for. Praise God with rightful worship for because he alone is worthy. It's an expectant look at who God has promised to be now and forever. My worship is due to him and him alone. You know, I love the fall and Friday, uh, Friday nights in the fall. Almost every Friday night, you'll find me out at our football stadium at a worship service. A worship service with thousands of people gathered. They don't care how hard the benches are. They don't care how loud the music is. They don't care if they don't appreciate that style. They're there dressed in their colors and enthusiastically chanting their songs. Can I tell you today, friends, that is worship. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Don't mishear me in the least. Don't go out of here and say Darren doesn't like Friday night football. Oh, I do. I just wish some of us could bring that same enthusiasm to church. Because one of the things that plagues me is when people stand there when we're singing and they refuse to sing. Arms crossed, lips sealed. Let me tell you, if that's the spirit in which you're going to sing, don't sing. Because we don't want it. But let me tell you, friends, the one that's losing is you. Because what God wants is not your words. He wants your heart. You might say, well, I'm not a very good singer. Yeah, me neither. That's why I hired out to my wife. She's the one that does the singing in our family, and I'm glad for that. But God is not caring at all about the quality of the music as much as he is the heart behind it. What God wants is you to praise him because he's worthy of your praise. A couple of things to take home with you. One, worship the only one who is truly worthy of your praise. There's really only one who's worthy of worship. Make sure you get it right. Two, when I worship, and this is a corollary to the first one, when I worship, my problems become a lot smaller because they get compared to God's power. When I see God for who he is, then it puts in perspective not only who I am, but my problems too. See, when I take these problems that I have and I compare them to how big and powerful God is, it's not nearly so frightening. Those don't have any merit or fear anymore because I know he's already won. Let's conclude with this, God's glory on display. Verses 5 through 8. I want you to underline this per first part of verse 5. As after this I looked, and this part's the underline, the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. The sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. The door of God's presence is open. Now let's be clear, friends, that is not to let God out. It is to let us in. It is to let the angels out. But this tent of witness or tabernacle as it has in some of your translations 
is continuing this Exodus idea that we've been talking about. See, the tent of witness in the Old Testament was the, the marker of God's presence. It's where God lived, if you will. And that tent of witness, there was a rule about it. You never left the tent open. It had to be closed. Now, at the end, God is opening the tent to send out his judgment. It's not that he's excited about judging. It's that his holiness demands it. He's commissioned the angels in their terrible work. He is the author of it, for his righteousness has to be avenged, and the arrogance of those who've rejected God's grace must be quelled. So they arrive in verse 7, even though the plagues don't get started until chapter 16. The seven angels are given seven bowls of judgment. One of the four living creatures, we met them back in chapters 4 and 5, one of the four living creatures steps forward and places those bowls in the hands of the seven angels. Perhaps it's these same bowls, back in Revelation 5, verse 8, that at that time were filled with incense representing the prayers of the saints. Perhaps, just maybe, the double use of these bowls, if they are indeed the same ones, reflect a relationship between prayer, God's holiness, and divine retribution on the other side, as if they are two sides of the same coin. Friends, I want to tell you today, God longs for everyone to respond to him. But if they don't, if they won't, then he's ready for that too. The bowls are distributed and the glory of the power of God fills the tent. It swells and takes over the place. Smoke fills the temple. Smoke has always been a symbol of the presence and glory of God. When God met with Moses on Mount Sinai, it was with smoke as if from a great furnace, Exodus 19 says. When the glory of God fills the temple in Isaiah 6, it is smoke that is represented by. When the glory of God fills the tabernacle in the wilderness, it is the cloud, smoke that rests on it, Exodus chapter 40. The smoke filling the tent here indicates the presence of God in all of his glory is actively carrying out his judgment against all wickedness. Once this moment begins, verse 8 says, no one can stop it. The time of intercession has passed. No longer does Jesus stand at the door and knock. Now, he kicks the door in. He firmly brings down the curtain in sovereign judgment. That which follows in chapter 16 is the full measure of God's wrath. I want to give you two things to take home and we'll be done. One, be certain all of history revolves around God's glory, not man's preferences. All of history, whether they acknowledge it or not, revolves around God's glory, not man's preferences. Finally, anchor yourself to God's truth about the future. 
Let's just pretend for a moment that we knew with absolute certainty, 100%, that the Dallas Cowboys would win today's game. There's probably some of you, although you might not admit it in church, who would go out and call every bookie and every sports betting agent you could find to place a wager on that, knowing it was a sure thing. Today, friends, I want to tell you, we have a sure thing ahead. And it is the sudden and complete drawing down of the created order. God will bring it all to a halt. We're sure of that. He will stop it. And when he does, there will be no further opportunity for response. But until then, we do have that chance. Maybe, just maybe, you're recognizing today that you're on the wrong side, that you're on the wrong team, that you've rejected God's grace and set it in, in favor of your own preferences, that you've rejected who God is in favor of what you want. I have good news for you, friends. It's not too late to change. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. We're not going to sing long. We're going to stand and sing. And when we do, this is what I want you to do. I want you to come down here and talk to me. Say, Darren, I want to talk further about what you've just said. I want you to come down here and let's talk about it. I'll probably hand you off to one of my staff for that purpose, but I want you to come down and let's get the conversation started. Today, this day, is the one God has given you for that very thing. Maybe you need to be a part of a church family that can help you navigate life and help you prepare for just such a moment as we're describing. I want you to come down too. I want you to come down here and say, hey, how do I get to be a part of the first family? Maybe you just need to come to this altar these steps are open for your use. I know it's been a long time since we've used them that way, but it doesn't mean that you can't. It's open for you to come and kneel. Nobody will bother you there. Pray, asking for God's wisdom, for his peace, for his strength. You know, the strongest I am is when I kneel. My prayer is that if that's you, and you'll be far more worried about what God knows than what others might think. Today is the day you get to put feet to the spiritual tapping that God is doing on your heart. Pray with me, won't you? Today, Jesus, we have gathered to respond to you. It's not that that's unusual. For many of us, we do that every week. But today, Jesus, we want to do more than that. We want to make sure that we're ready for this certain conclusion that you've got us pointed toward. My prayer, Jesus, is that you would help us to respond to you today. I pray for those, Lord, who have never responded to you. Would you do your work in their lives? Will you help them to understand, Jesus, why you came? It wasn't because you needed us. It's because you wanted us. I pray for those who need to be a part of our church family, that they would respond to you. 
I pray for those who need to come to this altar and use it to talk with you. Let this day be the one, Lord Jesus, when we respond to you. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.